Specialty Story, session number 106. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. As always, my name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm here to help you figure out what you want to do when you grow up. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's the question that we ask every week on this podcast and why I started this podcast. And we actually talk about that a little bit today with Dr. Jay Mehta, a pediatric rheumatologist. And he talked about his journey to pediatric rheumatology and how he really didn't even know about it until he rotated while he was a resident. And so that's really the goal of this podcast is is to expose you to these specialties that are out there that you may or may not know about. So hopefully you are listening every week, taking notes, and really trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. If you are a medical student or a pre-med student looking to get ahead of the game, go check out Board Rounds, our podcast dedicated to step one or level one for you osteopathic students. You can find our podcast over at boardrounds1.com. This week, again, as I said, we have Dr. Jay Mehta. He's actually the fellowship director at CHOP for pediatric rheumatology, but we focused more on just pediatric rheumatology in general and not a specific fellowship director podcast like we've had recently. He's been out of training now for 10 years, and had we had a great discussion all about pediatric rheumatology. We start the discussion with how he first became interested in pediatric rheumatology. I went into med school, pretty sure I, was, I went to do pediatrics, um, flirted with a little bit, um, few other things in med school thought about like every rotation I was on, I was like, Oh, this is beautiful. I could do this. And then, um, as I thought about it a little bit more and, and, um, uh, just kept coming back to pediatrics. So someone gave me a mentor, gave me the advice of, um, pick the field that at the end of the day, like when you're on that rotation, you come home, you really want to talk about everything that you did that day. And that was, um, pediatrics. And I really loved the people that I uh, got to work with, you know, not just the patients, but, but also the, the other residents and the, the, um, the faculty. Um, but I went to a really small med school. So I was at the university of Nevada and we didn't have any real exposure to pediatric rheumatology back then. My only exposure to rheumatology was I, I did an adult room, um, elective in fourth year med school and, um, thought that was interesting, but didn't really, um, have any sense that kids, um, got rheumatic disease. And so I went, um, and so went to pediatrics, started doing my residency and was pretty sure I wanted to do hemonc, um, so PT monk. And the reason was because I'd done a P team elective in med school and loved it. So, I, and what I loved about it was the diagnostic aspect of it. So I loved looking at a smear and or looking at a CBC and, uh, kind of coming up with the diagnosis that way mm-hmm. and thought I would, um, or assumed I would like P donk because the Diseases are really interesting. The kids are sick. There's you get to make these great relationships with families, um, and I just thought it would be something I would enjoy. And so being able to do human onc together would be great. And I did my onc elective, or sorry, my onc rotation 
second year of residency. I did it early because I wanted to, I was planning to apply for fellowship and, and, um, and realized that I, that I actually didn't love the practice of oncology for various reasons. So our, like the oncologists that I worked with were amazing, but all the things that I loved about heme weren't necessarily there in onc. So, um, a lot of the diagnoses were made through biopsies or through imaging. Um, and so the oncologists themselves weren't making the diagnoses and then the treatments were, um, very protocolized. And that's really great because the mortality from childhood cancer has dropped incredibly, um, since treatments have become protocolized. But then as an oncologist, you're not making a lot of, um, sort of decisions about treatments, or at least this was my very simplistic view of how oncology worked. Um, So I kind of decided that that's not what I wanted to do. So now I was like, well, now what am I going to do? Because I really was going down this path. And uh, and then around that time that I was like, you know, um, not sure what what I was supposed to do with my life, I had a couple of really interesting patients who had who had these diagnostic dilemmas. um, And each of whom turned out to be um, kids with autoimmune disease. Um, so the first one that I remember was this kid that we had admitted to the floor for fevers and and um, a funny rash and um, and and I remember and we were you know consulted everyone. I remember it was it was a Saturday and I was sitting in the resident workroom and the our pediatric rheumatologist walked in to the resident workroom and he told us all to go listen to this kid's heart because the kid had a pericardial rub. And he said, you know, this is systemic JIA, systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And I thought it was so cool that that diagnoses were were being was being made through the physical exam. Like that's that's just not something that got done all the time. Um, and I love that part about it. And then another patient that I had um, came in for some vague complaints, you know, feeling sick and um, abdominal pain and some other things going on. And and through the process of working her up, um, it it turned out that she had lupus. And so, and it was very much putting a puzzle together as we, we figured out this diagnosis, like each little piece of information that came in from the labs and the imaging eventually pointed to this diagnosis of lupus. And I just, and, and that, and I kind of got the bug then, like, I was like, this is just, you get to be kind of a puzzle solver, um, in, in rheumatology. Um, and then around the time that that was, um, I was, I was realizing that was when the um, biologic era was starting. So this was the like mid 2000s and, and it was really when um, biologics were coming onto the scene. And so the rheumatologists that I talked to were, were telling me that, that the things that they were now able to do for kids with arthritis and other autoimmune diseases like were unheard of five years before that. Um, you know, kids were no longer ending up in wheelchairs with arthritis. They weren't needing to go to physical therapy. We were basically able to like offer them a normal life. And so the combination of this um, being able to make these very cool diagnoses through kind of this putting on a puzzle solver hat and then, um, and then being able to have really cool treatments for these, these patients. I mean, it just, it just fit. Um, and, and after I kind of realized that like nothing else was as exciting as that. Sounds like you're a Dr. House fan. I, so I've never, never actually seen the show. I've seen, uh, oh, wow. um, and yeah, it's, and it's one of those things that, uh, um, everyone, it's like, oh, you must watch House. I've never <laughs> actually watched the show. Yeah. Except don't. for some random clips that we like watch during our doctoring class to like um, highlight how arrogant he is. <laughs> yeah. Um, what not, not to, to do not as to a do doctor. That. Exactly. Yeah. What 
traits do you think lead to someone being a good pediatric rheumatologist? Um, I think there's a, there's probably at least a couple of things. So one is, um, collegiality is probably one of the biggest things. So we, the, just by the very nature of autoimmune disease, um, all organs can be affected basically. I mean, everything from the brain to the kidneys, to the, the GI tract, to the skin. And so we end up working with every specialist in the hospital. And, and so, and being able to, um, and, and, being able to work with all the specialists is so fundamental to how we take care of our patients. And so if you're not someone that's able to, you know, work well with, um, a nephrologist, like you're going to have a really hard time treating kids with lupus nephritis. Um, if you're not someone that works well with your dermatologist, like, you know, all of our diseases can affect the skin. And so you really have to take that collegial spirit, um, to, you know, uh, reaching out to your colleagues and then trusting their opinions. So I think that's one big one. The other one is you like to, um, you have to want to think about your patients. Um, a lot of what we do is, is there's a lot of things that we see um, in a day that we're not able to put a name on in terms of a specific diagnosis, but we can say, okay, kind of looks like this, kind of looks like this. Um, I think, and and reach back to your your knowledge of immunology um, to think about what might be going on in a disease and then use that to come up with targeted treatments. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about our patients. We have incredibly interesting patient discussions um, when we all get together for a divisional meeting. Um, And then you just have to love to form relationships with families. So the nature, again, the nature of autoimmune disease is a lot of them are very chronic. And so I, you know, been seeing patients for years um, and, and watching them grow up. Um, but you have to be the kind of person that wants to, to have that long-term relationship with families and then work with them through a lot of the things that are going on because again, autoimmune disease is, is systemic. And so we have patients that have, um, neuropsychiatric disease from their lupus. And so working with them through that, working with schools, um, on those sorts of things, um, is, is pretty important. Let's go back to the basics. I I think a lot of students listening to this may not really understand what a rheumatologist is or what a rheumatologist does. They 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 see dermatologists like okay, derma skin, right? They uh, GI doc, okay, we we all have guts, we can we can see that, we can do that. But rheumatology, it's like, well, I don't remember the room system in my anatomy class. Right. Um, right. Talk talk about kind of what rheumatology is and and the types of patients that you're seeing. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question. So the the term room actually is like Latin for flux, which like, what does that mean when it comes to um, disease? And I, I know think flux it, it capacitor per- from, from back right. to the future. Right, right, right. right. Um, and I think it refers to like the flux of like good and bad humors like throughout the body. It's this very ancient term that doesn't yeah. really mean anything. Um, and part of, I think, the confusion is because the practice of adult and pediatric rheumatology can be very um, dissimilar. Um, and so I mentioned, you know, that I had no idea when I was, when I was in residency that I wanted to do rheumatology is is because my only experience was with adult rheumatology. And there was, um, when I was an intern, there was a third year that was going into Pete's room. I was like, why would you want to do that? Like that's, um, you know, uh, like osteoarthritis and gout is like what you associate adult rheumatology with, or at least what I did again, my simplistic med school mindset. But, um, but it's really 
it's really much more fascinating than that. It's it's the best way to describe it is is systemic autoimmune diseases. Um, and so obviously autoimmune diseases are where the immune system goes haywire and starts uh, you know getting confused and and attacking uh, the body. And um, and uh, and and a lot of those diseases can affect the joints, um, which is why a lot of people refer associate rheumatology with joint diseases. And we get referred a lot of things for um, you know kids with musculoskeletal pain or kids with with activity related joint pain and things like that. But really, the way that I think about it is rheumatologic diseases are uh, kind of systemic autoimmune diseases. So for you, you talked earlier about loving the the kind of diagnostic dilemma of rheumatology. Could you guesstimate the percentage of patients coming to you needing a diagnosis versus those that kind of come with a diagnosis from their primary care provider and they're just seeing you for for treatment? Yeah, this is uh, this is another one of the really fun things about um, our field is that we we kind of get, we get to be the expert in a really nebulous field that a lot of people don't understand. Um, and so, and I don't, and I don't blame primary providers and, and other people that are referring patients to us for not understanding the disease. The diseases are complex, they're rare, um, they require remembering immunology from way back. And so it's, you know, in the very busy practice of primary care pediatrics, like there's a lot of stuff that you're not necessarily going to remember, but knowing when to refer someone to us is important. So it's all a way to answer your question is most patients that are coming to us um, don't have a, um, a defined diagnosis, but, um, but a pediatrician can say, okay, this kid's been having fevers for weeks now. It's, it's probably not an infection. It may be oncologic, um, but there's a good chance it's rheumatologic and so they'll come to us. And a lot of the times when patients are coming to see us, they're also getting referred to ID and, and ONC at the same time because all of our all of our diseases can um, can affect multiple organs, can cause fevers, can cause patients to look really sick. Um, so most most patients aren't coming to us for a with a um, defined diagnosis yet. The other thing that happens is because these diseases are rare and and um, and, and primary care providers don't necessarily want to miss them. Um, we get there's a lot of um, we get a lot of patients that come to us with with benign or or what we call mechanical joint pain, but that there is a concern for arthritis. And so, a lot of what we do is is differentiating uh, mechanical joint pain, um, which is usually um, benign, doesn't lead to long term damage, gets treated with physical therapy, from actual inflammatory joint pain, which we need to treat with good immunosuppressives. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, it is uh, well for me. It's it's a little um, unusual in that I do have a couple different um, hats that I wear. So in terms of being involved with the fellowship program and the the residency program, um, and then I do um, some um, education research. Um, so I have an interest in how people make uh, career decisions, um, how they how fellows navigate through. Um, career transitions through fellowship and into um, attending life. And so I spend a little bit of time uh, doing that as well. But when I'm in clinic, which is a couple days a week, um, I see, I'll see a couple um, new patients and then about four to six follow-up patients. Um, and so those um, new patients are, you know, people again that have been referred to me for 
um, either some symptom that makes um, a primary care provider think about autoimmune disease or there's some abnormal lab value. So an ANA has been sent for some reason, anti-nuclear antibody has been sent for some reason, it's positive, and then um, a patient gets sent to us for, for interpretation of that. Um, and then the follow-up patients are um, our most common disease is juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, which is a childhood chronic um, arthritis. Um, and so I'll see, you know, a couple of my follow-ups might be patients that are that are stable on our biologic therapies or or um, patients that maybe I see once and I'm not totally sure what's going on. I've done some labs and then I'm seeing them for follow-up. Um, and then a few weeks out of the year, I, I see patients on our inpatient service or our consult service. Um, and, uh, and those are patients either with an established autoimmune disease or rheumatologic diagnosis that have been admitted because they're flaring or need um, additional therapy, or um, the majority of the time on, on our inpatient service or consult services because the patient's been admitted to the hospital because they have you know, fevers or um, some multi-system disease, and we're being consulted to evaluate for a rheumatologic cause. And the really fun, the other fun part of my job is I get to work with with trainees all day long. So we have a um, pretty active fellowship program. Um, and so most of the time I'm working with a fellow or a resident or a student. And that's, that's really fun to get to teach um, all these people about rheumatology because, again, it is, it is something that's nebulous to, to most people. Yeah. For the procedure-happy students out there, what sort of procedures, if any, are there in rheumatology? Yeah, so um, we we do. It's not a it's not a terribly heavy um, procedure field, but um, we do joint injections. So um, one of the ways that we treat kids who have active arthritis who are flaring is by doing corticosteroid injections. Um, and then ultrasound has really been emerging as like in lots of fields of medicine, but we've really been using ultrasound a lot in um, in rheumatology to either diagnose arthritis or to monitor response to therapy. Uh, and so that's been really fun to get to use the ultrasound a lot more. Do you have to take a lot of call? The, um, the great thing about pediatric rheumatology, or, or one of the many great things I've, I've hopefully um, given you a sense that I love <laughs> a lot of things about my field, Yes, um, but that there's, um, that it's a, uh, it's there's very few pediatric rheumatology emergencies that require the rheumatologist to be to to actually see the patient at that moment. So a lot of what we do, so it's all home call, um, and a lot of what we do is working with the the folks that are already in the hospital, so the ED docs or the um, you know the in-house uh, uh, physicians on the floor or the ICU docs. Um, you know, if a patient's flaring in the middle of the night or they come in, one of our patients comes to the ED, we can, we can work through things on the phone and then see the patient in the morning. So it's, it's all home call and it's not, uh, it's not super busy. Uh, it's not one of those things where you're up all night. That definitely helps. Do you, do you feel like as a pediatric rheumatologist, you have enough time for life outside of the hospital and clinic? Definitely. So I, um, so my my wife is a she's in finance and her um, schedule is crazy. So she's traveling a couple days a week and um, and we have a couple kids. Unfortunately, we have good good childcare. But um, the nice thing about rheumatology is that it's a it's a primarily outpatient field. Um, and so um, when I'm in clinic, I know I'm generally going to be done by about five thirty or six, and then um, going home to to spend a f- um, 
a little bit of time with my kids before they go to bed. And then, um, and so I, so I definitely am able to, um, uh, have plenty of time with my family. And then when I'm on call for the weekend, um, we'll go in around for a couple hours and then, um, come home and then have the rest of the rest of the day, um, with my family or, or whatever it is that we're doing. So, um, so, so very, um, it's a great work-life balance. The, the one downside, I mean, I think this is something that's seen in a lot of areas of medicine is, is the, the, um, burden of the EMR. Um, and so after my kids go to bed or, um, um, I'll, I'll spend a little time, um, on the EMR charting. It's, it's not that much, but, but it can yeah. be the one sort of thing. And I'm sure you've heard that from plenty of other once, once or um, twice specialists. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. the downfall of, of American medicine. Right. Right. What's the training path look like to become a pediatric rheumatologist? So it is, um, three years of Pete, um, or if, if we're having more and more people go the med peds route and then um, wanting to do combined fellowships. Um, so we're actually exploring how to create a combined fellowship in my, in my program along with the adult um, folks at Penn. Um, but uh, it's generally three years of pediatrics and then the fellowship is three years. Um, there's, there's a ton of debate about whether a three-year fellowship is necessary. Um, and, and for now, it's, it's um, being kept at three years. Um, and the first year is generally um, primarily clinical, and the the second and third year are more tailored to um, someone's academic interests. Um, so the American Board of Pediatrics requires people to do some scholarly product um, for that second third year, um, and that can be you know an education research project, a basic science research project, a clinical research project. Um, QI is being increasingly accepted as as kind of a scholarly. Um, project. So there's lots of different directions you can, you can take that, but it's, it's primarily three years of pediatrics followed by three years of fellowship. How competitive is it? It's, uh, it's interesting. It's not a, it's not a, it's very competitive, um, field at all. Um, and that's one of my areas of, uh, I mentioned that I, I do some education research. One of the areas is, is understanding what are the, what are the factors that make someone interested in pediatric rheumatology and decide to pursue it or not. But it's, there's about 30, 30 to 40 fellowship slots a year. Um, and about, um, 20 of 20 of them get filled. So it's, it's, it's between about 35 or sorry, 50 to 60% of slots get filled every year. Um, and so, um, I think there's lots of different reasons why it's, um, less competitive. I think, um, you know, one is that, I mean, I mentioned that I had no idea what a pediatric rheumatologist did when I went into to residency. Um, I think there's not a lot of exposure um, to it. That's what this podcast um, is I, for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now the, the slots are all going to be filled after this. Um, uh, there's, it's a, um, the compensation is, you know, because it's not a procedure heavy field, because our visits take um, a long time, um, we don't we don't generate the kind of revenue in terms of procedures or in terms of volume that some of the other fields can. And so the compensation's in, in, on par with um, general pediatrics, um, which is still to say that you are going to be comfortable, um, but it's just not going to be uh, the compensation of one of the procedure-heavy fields. And so that could be another reason why uh, people aren't going into it. But I think it's, it's uh, obviously I'm biased, but I think it's, I mean, it's an amazing field. And I think um, 
as people get one of the one of the fun things is when people come and spend a couple of days in our clinic um, with us um, because it's part of some assigned rotation or something like that. They they're always like, "Wow, you guys have a lot of fun. Um, you seem to really enjoy what you're doing." Um, and and it's true. Like pediatric dermatologists in general are a really happy group of people, and and I think that's because our diseases are interesting. We get to form these great relationships with our families. Pediatric dermatologists in general are really nice um, people, and so. Uh, we have great colleagues. Um, and so I think it's it's one of those things that when people get exposed to it, they they kind of realize how awesome of a field it is. As the newly minted fellowship director there at CHOP, I'm sure, uh, obviously CHOP being a huge draw for people interested in pediatrics, it's a competitive program just in of itself. What should a student be doing to, or a resident be doing to be competitive for a fellowship at a big program like yours? Um, I think we, we look for, um, a couple things. I think one, if you go back to the things that I think make someone successful, or I think you asked me what are the qualities that make someone successful at the pediatric metallurgist, I think those are going to be the, the things that are going to be, make someone successful as a fellowship candidate. So evidence of collegiality. So what are the things that you've done to show that you can work well with, you know, within a team, um, within a, you know, within a group of people. We're not, you know, it's not a field where you can be like the lone, like brilliant surgeon that knows how to do, you know, a, a super special procedure. And it doesn't matter what um, your personality is like, people are going to come to you and you're going to, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we really have to work together in teams. And so what, whatever you can do to show that you can do that. I think anything that shows a level of intellectual curiosity. Um, uh, it is a it's a field that requires people to be intellectually curious, um, to be trying to improve their knowledge all the time. Um, we every year two or three more diseases get described um, and characterized in the pathophysiology that get characterized, and so you have to be constantly reading and to to stay on top of the field. And so to sh- so showing that. Um, that you can do that, and then dedication of the field. So, so, and and or at least curiosity about the field. So, what are the things that you've done to um, demonstrate that you have a real interest in pediatric rheumatology? You've done, you spent enough time with the rheumatologists. Um, you know, maybe you've done a research project, though. It's obviously it's tough in residency. Residency gets busier and busier every year. It's tough to to carry out, you know, extensive research project, but at least something that's shown that you. Um, have um, the drive to to get things done and and know about the field. For the osteopathic student or resident listening to this who's interested in Peds Room, what should he or she be doing to to be competitive at the more competitive programs? It's it's actually interesting that you you ask that. So one of the things that I um, have done recently is is uh, convened a working group of people to to think about the peds room workforce short, shortage so not only are the fellowship slots going on um filled but the american college of rheumatology has done a big workforce study that estimates that in 15 years or so we're going to have about half the pediatric rheumatologists we need um in the country to to fulfill demand um there's still like seven six or seven states that don't have a single pediatric rheumatologist so there's a huge demand for it but one of the things that we thought about is that we should probably do a better job of reaching out to the um, do schools and the reason for that is because um, the practice of, of osteopathic medicine um, is very as far as i understand it's very hands-on 
um, is very, you know, um, embedded with the musculoskeletal system. Um, and so one of the things that we, um, do in rheumatology is we actually have a great physical exam. We, we do a full joint exam on every patient that comes in. And I imagine that, and, and we've had, uh, at CHOP, we've had a couple, um, fellows that have been, um, trained at osteopathic schools and they have amazing physical exam skills. And so one of the things that we're, we're going to be looking into is how can we reach out better to the osteopathic schools and, and, and try to sell them on the joy of pediatric rheumatology. Yeah. Cool. Once somebody is getting done or getting through their, their peds room fellowship, are there opportunities either kind of officially or unofficially for either for even more uh, subspecialization? Yeah. Um, so there's, um, <clears throat> there's not, there's not official, um, fellowships, uh, like beyond, you, you know, you do three years and you're, you're ready to, to practice basically, unless you're playing, you know, if you're doing a, you want to um, be like in a basic science lab or something like that, you might do a little bit more postdoctoral training in a lab, but, um, but the field is, um, it is changing quite a bit. So I mentioned that there's a, there are a lot more uh, diseases getting um, kind of characterized. Um, and a lot of those are, are diseases that we consider auto-inflammatory, so diseases of the innate immune system. Um, and, and so there are um, places, CHOP included, um, there are some other places where there's, there's an increasing area of um, interest in these kind of immune dysregulation um, uh, syndromes. Um, and so you can... Uh, kind of try to develop an expertise in that, um, in those kind of things. There are places where, um, they have dedicated lupus clinics. And so, um, you can spend time actually, um, in those clinics, getting more expertise in lupus. And so there are some opportunities to, um, more in an unofficial capacity, uh, than, than kind of a seventh year of, of training or whatever, a fourth year of fellowship, um, to do some of that specialization. What do you wish primary care providers knew about pediatric rheumatology to to help their patients and to help you? Um, I think there's been, um, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I think I would have told you that that um, to be aware that kids get arthritis too, that's, that's the slogan actually, the Arthritis Foundation is kids get arthritis too. Um, and, and because we used to see a lot of kids who um, would have um, joint swelling, would get sent to orthopedists who um, would cast the kid and, um, and then cast would come off, the kid's joint would be swollen and they'd, then they'd come to us. Um, and, but by that time, they developed some uh, 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 joint damage and things like that. That's happening a lot less now because I think primary care providers and orthopedists are are um, doing really great at recognizing that that kids get arthritis, and so we're actually getting patients in um, faster. But there's still places that um, that's not happening, and these are probably in some of these places that uh, that don't have a lot of pediatric metology. Um, but I think that so so I think still recognizing that that arthritis um, can happen in kids, um, knowing the questions to ask the things to, um, uh, differentiate between arthritis pain, arthritis symptoms and mechanical. So time of day is a big, um, 
uh, time of day of pain is a big predictor of, of arthritis versus inflammatory, or sorry, inflammatory versus mechanical pain. So inflammatory pain tends to be in the morning. Whereas in adult rheumatology, having negative, like a negative rheumatoid factor and negative lab tests um, are, um, you know, you can, are, are, those are sort of screening tests for arthritis. And kids, most of them don't have abnormal labs. Um, and so don't rely on uh, negative labs to, to help make the diagnosis or arthritis. Um, those would probably be the two big ones. I'll, I'll try to think, but if I come up with something else, I'll let you know. Now, a common question I typically ask is what, what other specialties do you work the closest with? But you kind of hinted earlier that you work with basically everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, when someone is already diagnosed, depending on what, what parts of the disease is active, what, what organs, but then also in the, in the evaluation process, we, when a patient's, um, we're being, when they're first developing their symptoms and, you know, we, we actually have a, at CHOP, we have a new immune dysregulation team that consists of rheumatologists, oncologists, immunologists, and infectious disease. And, and that team will often get consulted when a patient comes in with some um, kind of unknown mystery disease. Um, and, and we all have to work pretty closely together to, to develop an evaluation and management plan. You really need to watch House. Yeah, I know, I know, right? <laughs> the more you talk, I'm like, you would really. I don't, it's yeah, one of those things where you get frustrated watching it because you're like, that's not what happens. But it's just, <laughs> it's fun. Um, is it on Netflix? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. It's got to be out there right, somewhere. I'll go look for it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, I'm not charting. Yeah. What, uh, if any, are there uh, any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for Pete's room? Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, I'd mentioned earlier that, that the, uh, the biologic era was starting when I, um, when I came into rheumatology, that's, I mean, like back then there were like three drugs, uh, that, that were biologics to treat, um, autoimmune disease. Now, I mean, there's probably 20, 20 to 25 biologic drugs that I might prescribe in any um, given month, um, meaning different drugs. And, and the, I mean, the pipeline is, is crazy for what's coming um, through um, in terms of the different pathways that could be targeted. Um, and, and the pathways are getting more and more specific. And so there's lots of opportunity within industry um, for someone with a knowledge of clinical rheumatology and a knowledge of basic immunology um, to practice. And so that would be the big, the, the, probably the biggest area outside of clinical medicine, um, that there is, there's lots of, um, I don't know if this, this qualifies as outside clinical medicine, but lots of opportunities for, for teaching, um, within, um, um, residencies and med schools and, um, rheumatologists often are the, um, you know, are, are one of the fields that, you know, are thought of as diagnosticians, we, we use the physical exam. And so we're often asked to help teach the physical exam to med students and residents and that sort of thing. So lots of opportunities for teaching. What would you go back and tell yourself before you started Peds Room about Peds Rheumatology and, and what you know now? Um, just do it. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I, you know, when I was, I, um, when I was trying to decide, I think I, I 
it took me a little bit of time to get over the, the idea that I wasn't going to do this field, the hemoc that I thought for sure I was going to. And I was like, do I want to do rheumatologist? I don't know that many, like what's the field going to be like? And then, I mean, I just could not have imagined that I would love it, um, as much as I, as I did, um, or as I, as I have. Um, and then, um, the other thing that I, um, I, I spent, uh, a couple years in a in a lab um, during fellowship, trying to make myself into a basic science researcher because I thought that's what I was supposed to do with my life, and and um, eventually figured out that I was like banging my head against the wall in in the lab because uh, I just wasn't good at it. Um, and and to be in the lab, you really have to love it. Um, and and I didn't love it, but I thought I would eventually, and I would have told myself not to to spend my time like just flogging myself for not being a good basic researcher and and just um uh gotten out and started practicing what do you like the most about being a pediatric rheumatologist oh so much um i would have to say it's probably a tie between my colleagues and our patients um i mean i love we have a we're lucky we have a we have a huge relatively huge group here. So there's nine attendings and six fellows. Um, and it's just, and it's a fantastic group of people to work with people that are nice, people that are smart, that are hardworking, that really love to take care of patients, um, that I'm constantly learning from. Um, and, uh, um, and then our patients are just these fantastic kids who, I mean, I get to see kids from all the way from close to birth until they're like 22 to um you know graduate from college um and and it's just it's really it's really fun because i because each stage of childhood like the the kids are fun for different reasons and the families are are very appreciative they're they're great people to get to know and so um i think those are probably the the two things that i love the most about my field what do you like the least uh, I mean, I think it's it's probably the the um, EMR burden um, because we uh, because our our evaluations are so um, complex. You know, we're doing full HPIs in every patient. We're doing full review systems. We're doing full exams. We're we're doing these complicated assessments where we're balancing large amounts of data. Which is the thing that makes it really fun, but then trying to actually put that on um, the computer, like right, like in the in the patient note, like that's it's it's um, it takes a long time, um, and uh, um, and there's you know multiple places to document the same thing, and it's just it it's a huge burden, and I think that's probably the thing that like if I could get rid of that, like and again, I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you this, like yeah. Um, I think it would just make the practice so much more fun. Have you guys evaluated adding scribes to the team? We've um, so Chops had a had a pilot for um, scribes in other divisions. We've talked about it. Um, I actually know a adult rheumatologist that's using a scribe in India, and he actually wears Google Glass. That the 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 rheumatologist wears Google Glass or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, sort of thing, and and he basically like narrates his exam, um, yep. and the scribe in India is doing it. Um, it sounds pretty cool. Um, and so, but but um, but we haven't uh, seriously explored it. But I think it's something that we've um, would be, I think, good to do. I don't I don't know how that would work with kind of 
these kind of complicated assessments and things that we would do, but, but I'm sure people have made it, have figured out how to make it work. So yeah, it's worth exploring. Definitely. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of pediatric rheumatology that someone who's interested in it should be aware of? Uh, I think, uh, on the good side, I think, um, more and more ultrasound, um, is, is being utilized. Um, so more and more people are getting trained in, in ultrasound and then training other people. Um, the, the drug development pipeline, like I mentioned earlier, is, is pretty, is going to be pretty amazing in the next few years. Um, I think I've heard rumors that there's a there's a move towards um, compensating cognitive fields, uh, cognitive um, diagnosis codes, and um, or ENM codes a little bit more. And so that would be interesting to see how that um, plays out. Again, we are and by no means um, starving. We do we do just fine, and and are very lucky to to um, have the incomes that we have. But it's it's not you know on the level of other procedural fields. But I but I've heard that that might be changing. We'll see. Um, and and then I think that there's a there's a move to um, at least a chop reduce the burden of of the EMR and so figuring out ways to make that more efficient um, will be happening. But I don't know if that's necessarily a, a change within the field. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a pediatric rheumatologist? <laughs> I hope that's been pretty clear for what I've talked. I mean, I love it. I uh, I uh, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I love to tell people about how much I love what I do. Um, and, and I think, and hopefully the patients when they come and see it, see me, um, recognize that I, I feel very privileged to, to do this job. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, without, without a doubt. And I think about this not infrequently, like when I see other, other, um, when I talk with my other, uh, colleagues within the hospital and, and, and I keep coming back to like, I love what I do. Yeah. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med, med student, or resident out there listening to this thinking about peds rheumatology? Um, if, you know, if you um, like to be around nice, fun people and um, think about interesting diseases and make great relationships with patients, like it is a fantastic field. Um, and it's one that's, I think, going to continue to get better as we're able to do more for our patients. But seek out opportunities. Just find the, like, pediatric rheumatologist, if you have one at your institution, like spend an afternoon shadowing them, spending time in their clinic. The American College of Rheumatology has great opportunities to, to um, get um, travel paid for to go to the annual um, meeting. This year it's in um, uh, Atlanta, next year it's in D.C. And so if you go to rheumatology.org, um, there's lots of great opportunities to go to our annual meeting to get um, paid to, to spend time with rheumatologists. Um, to do research. So, um, lots of opportunities. So if it sounds at all intriguing, just plenty of opportunities to, to, to get more exposure to the field. All right. So there you have it. Another great episode for you. Hopefully you were able to take some notes. Hopefully you were exposed to a new specialty that maybe you discounted because you were like, ah, I don't want to deal with that. Uh, that's boring. Uh, I don't, I don't want to deal with kids or whatever your reasons potentially for dismissing rheumatology or pediatric rheumatology. Hopefully, we encouraged you to go explore some more. Again, Dr. Jay Mehta talked about going to rheumatology.org and 
seeing if you can get some scholarship money to go to the annual conferences. So again, go check out all of that. Hope you enjoyed our podcast this week. Don't forget to subscribe. Let your fellow classmates know about this podcast. Share it with everyone far and wide. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.